Well, good morning, everybody. You know, I, I've uh, said this both times so far, and I'll say it again, because, uh, you know, when they show that picture of the grays, it's like amazing. The kids are taller than Andy and Nikki, and it's, you know, they leave your little kids, and what happens? It's crazy. <clears throat> the other thing is, uh, Pastor Jim, you know, w mentioned praying about the weather. Uh, we called them and asked them, so, hey, how's, you know, how's the weather going to be? Oh, don't worry, it's not bad. It's going to only be about 100 degrees. <laughs> Which, if you know me, I don't do all that well in uh, uh, hot weather, so it's uh, looking forward to that. But we get to be with the Grays here in just a, a couple weeks, and we're really looking forward to being over there with them. So uh, this morning, I want to start by asking you uh, to do something for me. I want you to think about somebody who you know loves you. So maybe that's uh, a child, maybe that's a parent. Uh, if you're married, hopefully it's your spouse. Uh, but think of somebody that if I came and, and said, you know, their name to you, you would say, oh, yes, absolutely. They love me. And then my question is, how do you know they love you? How do you know they love you? I mean, maybe you say, well, they told me they love me. But we all know we've had people tell us they love us. And then the next day, you know, do things that don't feel very loving. But maybe it's because they've done some nice things for you or they, bought you, they buy you things or maybe they've rescued you when you've been in trouble. Or, but what makes you think that somebody loves you? How do you know they love you? Because today uh, I am going to begin our study in Malachi asking that question, how do I know God loves me? But before I do that, I want to give a little bit of background information. Uh, my guess is most of you have not done a lot of study on Malachi. Just a wild guess, but you know, I think that's probably true. Uh, so let me just give you a little bit of background about the book of Malachi. First of all, it's written by the prophet uh, Malachi. And I, I say that because it sounds pretty obvious, but honestly, if you look, there are some that don't necessarily uh, think that he wrote, that there is the prophet Malachi, because Malachi means my messenger. And so there are some that actually think that maybe the prophet Ezra wrote it, and it's just talking about my messenger. But by and large, most scholars believe that there was a prophet Malachi that wrote it. And the other reason why it's hard to kind of pinpoint that is oftentimes with some of the prophets, you'll, you'll hear the, them talk about this prophet that reigned or that, that was a prophet during the reign of such and such a king. And we don't get that with Malachi. Or you'll hear uh, this prophet is the son of so-and-so. And again, we don't get that with Malachi. There's other prophets we don't get that with as well. But with Malachi, we don't get that. So there's not an easy way to kind of place him uh, in anybody's lineage or, or who he is. Uh, but but confident that he is the, the prophet that brings us this book. Uh, it's referred to, it's known as one of the minor prophets, and that's such a strange term to me. Uh, it, you know, it doesn't mean that he's a lesser than prophet. It just means those books that are the minor prophets are shorter than those books of the prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. <clears throat> And then within the minor prophets, uh, he is the last of the 12 minor prophets, uh, which again, isn't an, a statement of, uh, you know, priority or, or, you know, who's the most important. Uh, in fact, if you look at the Old Testament, it's not put together in chronological order. Uh, there's, there's, uh, it's one of the reasons why uh, it's fun once in a while to read through the Bible chronologically, because it helps you kind of see the order that everything comes. But it's, it's 
Uh, it's generally accepted that Malachi was kind of the last of the prophets, meaning that he is in a sense that transitional voice between the end of the Old Testament and what we know as the New Testament. And so when it comes to kind of placing the when of Malachi, I, I thought this timeline might be a good way to kind of help you see this. Don't worry about all the numbers because honestly, uh, no one was there in 1996 BC to know that that's exactly when Abraham was born. But somewhere around 2000 BC, uh, this man named Abram uh, from uh, Ur, which is modern day Iraq, uh, God said, go someplace that I will tell you about. And that off begins the covenant between God and his people. And then Abraham and Sarah give birth to Isaac. Uh, Isaac and Rebekah give birth to these twins, Esau and Jacob, who I will tell you more about here uh, a little bit later. And then somewhere around 1750 uh, BC, Joseph is sold into slavery. Uh, and then we know that somewhere around 1500 BC, along comes uh, this guy Moses, and he leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of captivity, and the Exodus that we read about in the book of Exodus. And then certainly the high point of, of Israel, the nation of Israel, is probably around 1000 BC when David is anointed king of Israel and unites the kingdom and becomes uh, King David. Around 1000 BC, Solomon... David's son builds the temple. And then I inserted this 776, the first Olympiad. And you might be going, what does that have to do with anything? And here's, here's the reason is, you know, I, I think sometimes when we think of Bible history, we, we can look at it and say, well, there's Bible history and then there's kind of real history. But they're one and the same. Like all these things, you know, in fact, last May I had the opportunity to go to uh, Israel with, with uh, some of the folks from Lake City and it was an amazing trip. But one of the things that was just amazing to uh, be there for was that you saw that these stories that you've been reading about happened. Like in this place, like you, you read about a story and then you're standing in the place where it took place. And so I put that in there because I want you to understand that, you know, Bible history is going along alongside history history because it's one and the same. And so, yes, in 776 uh, BC, in the midst of all this is the first Olympiad. And then we keep moving forward and at 600 AD, uh, BC is the destruction of Jerusalem, the Babylonian exile that we read about in the book of Daniel. Uh, 516, Israel is, is allowed to kind of go back and the temple is completed. Uh, in, in 458 is when Ezra becomes a, a prophet. And again, this is where you'll see the books are in a different order than chronologically. And then 445, Nehemiah comes back to rebuild the, the walls of Jerusalem. And so somewhere in that time period is where Malachi fits. And so you can see him kind of at the end of that timeline, uh, right before the next voice which comes, which is uh, prophesied uh, coming, is that uh, voice that's going to come to prepare the way for, of course, the Messiah. And that voice, of course, is John the Baptist. And so there's about 400 years between Malachi and uh, John the Baptist, and of course, our Messiah. 
And so that gives you a kind of a snapshot of sort of where does Malachi fit in this as we're listening to this book of Malachi. And, and uh, so with that as a background, let me just start uh, with Malachi 1. And it, we read these words, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And this is a great verse to help us understand what? Like what is the book of Malachi all about? And here in the verse, first verse, we read a few things. Number one, we read it. It's an oracle. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word oracle. Uh, maybe you're warped like me, and this is what you think of when you hear the word uh, oracle. <laughs> this is Gloria Foster, and she plays the oracle in the movie Matrix, and the oracle uh, smokes cigarettes and bakes cookies, okay? Uh, but she's also this dispenser of great wisdom and knowledge. And so people in the movie, The Matrix, would go see the oracle. And so maybe that's what your vision is when you hear the word oracle, you know, some guru that dispenses great wisdom. It's translated from a word masa, which means, uh, has, carries with it this idea of to bear or burden. And, uh, and, but it also uh, carries with it this understanding of to lift up or to carry. And so I, I, I think you're going to find that there's more of that uh, sense, especially today. Uh, in other words, it's not always negative. It's always not always this burden, although you'll see throughout Malachi that there is a burden that, that Malachi is going to speak into. Uh, but I want you to think of, when you think of, of um, Oracle, I want you to think of utterance or pronouncement, okay? So uh, what is Malachi? Well, it's an oracle. It's a pronouncement. What else is it? It's the word of the Lord. In other words, it clearly defines that or shows that it is of divine origin. In other words, this isn't some stuff that's coming from a really wise prophet. This is coming from the, the Lord. This is, a, this is the, the word of the Lord. And then it says, to Israel. In other words, not against Israel. Yes, there's going to be some uh, burdens talked about, but it, this is not uh, against Israel. This is an oracle for Israel, to Israel. Uh, the other thing that these words to Israel help us understand is it's emphasizing, uh, it's de-emphasizing the prophet and it's emphasizing Israel. In other words, this isn't an oracle for Malachi. This is an oracle for Israel. <clears throat> and then the final uh, phrase there is by Malachi. And, you know, from that we understand that this is a word, a word of the Lord by or through Malachi. So this, this divine word is going to come to us, but it's going to come to us by Malachi or through Malachi. So that's kind of the what Malachi is. And then the next thing I want I to talk to you about is, so if that's what Malachi is, how is this delivered? And, and you know, when I, when I uh, looked at sort of the, the structure, if you will, of Malachi and how does he deliver it, uh, th this phrase kept coming up that it's a didactic dialectic. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. Like, what is that? Uh, it's, it, here's... Here's the best I can do explaining to, to you, okay? Because this comes up over and over again in the book of Malachi. It's this idea, it's kind of a three-part thing. So what happens is first, uh, like today you'll hear this, God makes this declaration. Uh, he makes this pronouncement, if you will. You know, the, you know, the oracle, uh, it can be a rhetorical statement, but, but God makes this declaration. 
And then the second part is, and you'll keep hearing these three words, but you say. In other words, God says something, and then Malachi says, but you say. So in other words, there's this complaint. Uh, I don't know about you. Anybody here ever complain about something that God has said? Right? Well, so we hear the complaint. Uh, you know, you, you, but you say. And then the third part is God's response. Uh, in other words, now the truth comes out. Uh, I, somebody just stopped me after the last service and said, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, what I, what I think, what you think, and then what's really true, right? And that's sort of what this uh, didactic dialectic, what is, who, you English people, I'm, an, I'm a math guy, so that, that makes no sense to me. But anyhow, I'm getting off track there. All right. So that structure is kind of used throughout Malachi, and Malachi uh, addresses six different disputes, if you will. And those six disputes are, the first one is God's love, which we're going to talk about this morning, uh, unfaithful priests. The third one is divorce. The fourth one is divine justice. The fifth one is the tithe. And the sixth one is the day of judgment. And so the six sermons that we're going to have on Malachi, uh, in essence, address those six disputes. And they will all use some version of that uh, three-part uh, process. And so with all of that, I want to jump into today's dispute, if you will. Dispute number one, God's love. And as I said a few minutes ago, it begins with God's declaration. And God's declaration is simply this, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you, says the Lord. Understand that phrase, I have loved you, that's not a past tense. It's not like, I have loved you, I don't love you anymore. Uh, it much more means, I have always loved you. In other words, God is saying to his people, I have always loved you. And I love that, and I think it's important to see that. See, God is not saying, I'm mad at you. He doesn't start with, you know, you are in trouble. He's not starting with, you know, I have some things that I need you to, to go fix. He starts with, I love you, and I have always loved you. I think about, uh, you know, me as a parent and raising my kids, and how many times when things would happen and I would sit them down, I would start with, okay, look, we've got to fix some things. You know, we need to do some things differently around here. You know, after a game, to sit them down and show, explain to them all the things they did wrong in the game. Our family, we, uh, we were big with family meetings. Uh, we, we parented by family meetings. We had them all the time. Had hundreds of family meetings uh, raising our kids. And I remember, uh, you know, one of the early family meetings, Kelly would slip me the piece of paper with all the things she wanted to make sure I went over at the family meeting. And... And I mean, and I was on, like I was, I was going after it, you know, do this and this, and you got to stop doing this, and we need to fix this and get this right. And, and I get all done. It's like, there you go. Family meeting. <laughs> and my, my oldest daughter, Elise, raises her hand in the back and she says, uh, so dad, did we do anything right? <laughs> right? Gut punch. Because yes, of course they had. Of course they had. But... As so often, you know, we immediately jump into all the things we need to fix. I know this will shock you, but it also makes me think of football. <laughs> I, was a, I was a player back in the old days when you had actual film. Like, you know, they would film the practice and then that film had to be run. We, we were in Pullman, so they had to be run up to Spokane so it could be, uh, fit, you know, developed overnight and then rushed back down to us so we could watch it the next day in our meetings. And... Uh, 
and then we would show it on a projector, uh, which means it ran through and there was a light behind the, the film and it shined it onto the screen. It was amazing. But those, those uh, projectors that we used, they all had the same thing. They had the button, this red button. And so what would happen is you'd watch the film, it'd be running and forward, and then they would see you make a mistake and the coach would push the button and you would go backwards. And then they lift up the button and you'd make the mistake again. They push the button, you'd go backwards. They lift the button, you'd make them, you know, every time you made the same mistake, it never fixed itself, right? And I remember thinking, when I coach, I am never doing that. And then I became a coach. And I found myself doing the same things, right? Always pulling the kids aside and saying, dude, you need to fix this. Right? Which of course we have to, but I love here that God begins with, I have loved you. I have loved you. And what a great model for us as parents, as coaches, as bosses, that yes, we have to fix things, but isn't it awesome to think about starting with, I love you. Right? And as I look at the most successful coaches, the most successful parents, they all are really great at leading with, I love you. And I think it's a great reminder for all of us. And so that's God's declaration. I have loved you. And then Israel's dispute, remember those three words. But you say, so Malachi is saying, God says, I have loved you. But you say, how have you loved us? Now, I don't want you to read that like, you know, oh, tell me all the ways that you've loved us. Think of that, asking that question with a little bit of an attitude. How have you loved us? Right? Anybody ever been there before? And to understand that, it's important to understand kind of the current state of things here in Israel. Because see, after Israel is exiled and eventually the temple is rebuilt, uh, you know, they're hearing, uh, the nation of Israel is hearing about these, these promises, these things that are going to happen. All the nations, Zechariah talks about all the nations coming, uh, coming to Israel. It, it there's promises made to Zerubbabel. And then, you know, they hear about these, these prophecies that, that uh, the Jews were going to all return. And they're looking around and none of this is happening. All they're seeing is Persian domination. And so as they're looking around at all of this, they're hearing God say, you know, uh, God say, I have loved you. Their response is, how have you loved us? Right? They're telling Malachi, how have you loved us? But here's the thing, God's listening, right? It reminds me of uh, the story of the soldier who uh, goes to chapel one day. And as he goes to chapel, he sits down in the pew and he realizes, he looks up, he realizes it's his battalion chaplain up there. And he lets out kind of this audible groan. Ugh. And this, the lady sitting next to him goes, young man, what's the matter? And he goes, oh, nothing. He goes, I just, I know him. He's my battalion chaplain. He's, he's, he's just boring. And she goes, do you know who I am? And she goes, no. He, she says, well, I'm his wife. <laughs> and he goes, oh, he goes, well, do you know who I am? And she goes, nope. He goes, hallelujah. And he dashes out the back door. <laughs> See, when Israel is complaining, God's listening. Like God hears this. But you think about it. Why do we complain? Why is Israel complaining? Why do we complain? And I, I think 
by and large, it oftentimes comes down to reconciling two truths, that God is all loving and God is all powerful, right? Because if we believe God is all loving, then certainly he wants to fix the broken stuff in my life. But if he's all loving and wants to fix it, but he, but he can't, then he must not be all powerful. But if he's all powerful and could fix it, but he doesn't fix it, then he can't be all loving. And so in that, in reconciling that, oftentimes I think we find ourselves complaining about the situation we're in. If you're uh, reading through the Bible chronologically, then by, uh, in, in most, likely, m most likely you have already read through the book of Job. And uh, when you read through the book of Job, which I just did uh, fairly recently, uh, you see Job and his friends kind of living out a bit of this, uh, this idea that I'm talking about. Uh, the Bible says that Job is righteous, and it says that God allows uh, Satan to take everything away. Uh, it says in Job that Satan is, is roaming around the world, and God says to him, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then the Bible says it, that uh, Satan said, well, yeah, of course. I mean, he's got everything. You got a hedge of protection around him. I mean, of course he's, he's this wonderful guy. Take all that away and he will turn on you. And so God gives Satan permission to do that. And uh, it, it says in one scene, it, it, Job is standing there and it says a, a messenger comes up to him and tells him, you've lost all your ox and all your donkeys. And then it says, while he was yet speaking, another messenger comes up and says, you've lost all your camels. And then another messenger, as he was yet speaking, comes up and says, you've lost your sheep and your servants. And then says, while he was yet speaking, another messenger comes up and says, you've lost all your kids. And then we read this in verse 20 of Job. It says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So his life is falling apart around him, but he understands that God is God and he's not. Uh, even his friends uh, start off doing pretty good. Uh, we read in Job 2, beginning verse 13, it says, And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. And on, honestly, oftentimes often that's all we can do when we come and sit with somebody that we know is, is hurting, is we just sit. Like there are no words, there's nothing we can do to fix it. We just sit and be with them. And Job's friends are doing that. But of course that eventually changes and you know, we read like, for instance, in Job 5, beginning in verse 17, it says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. In other words, these well-meaning fr friends start to say, Job, what have you done wrong? Like, clearly, you must have done something to make God mad. You must have done something wrong. Stop despising the discipline of the Almighty. What have you done? Come clean. And I think oftentimes we look at our life circumstances that way, right? We look around and things are going well and oh, we must be in God's favor or things are going bad. Oh, we've, you know, we must have done something wrong. And yes, there are times when certainly God, uh, you know, he blesses us in ways that we can't explain any other way. And there's times that God is disciplining. But too often we immediately jump to that. And so here Israel is doing that. They're looking at their circumstances and they're saying, how can you love us? Right? And so God's response to them, we find 
beginning of the end of verse 2. He says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I had loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So God begins by reminding them, I chose you. The, the Swiss theologian, Dr. Karl Barth, I don't agree with all of his theology, but he was considered by some in his generation the greatest theologian in the world and a great philosopher as well. Uh, when he was traveling in, in uh, the U.S. in 1962, a student at one of the seminaries that he was speaking to asked him this question, said, uh, Dr. Bart, can you sum up all of your years of theological study into one sentence? And he said, yes, I can. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Right? We know God loves us because the Bible tells us that he loves us. But the challenge is we're looking at our life around us and we're trying to, we're trying to resolve those two things. And so what happens is, you know, if things are going well, then we feel like, okay, everything's okay. And if things are challenging, if we have struggles, if we have challenges, then we think, oh, there must be something wrong with, with God or God must not love me. And uh, I love this in Deuteronomy 7. We read this. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. In other words, he chose Israel not because they, you know, they were great or they, were, they deserved it or anything else. They just, he chose them. See, it's dangerous when we start assigning God's blessing or God's love on our situation. And don't get me wrong, absolutely, God blesses obedience. God blesses faithfulness, but not always the way we think he's going to. See, this side of heaven, we can't base God's love for us on how well things are going in the circumstances of our life. We can't question God's love because of trials. I know some of you out here are experiencing big trials right now. Trust me, God loves you. Your trial is not an illustration of that God does not love you. God loves you. Romans 9, we're reminded of this truth. He's talking about Jacob and Esau. He says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. And I know it's, it's hard to resolve that word hated uh, when you're thinking about God hating Esau. And when I look at that, I think of a couple different things. One is, uh, you know, if you read in Hosea 6.6, 6, it says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now understand, it's not that God doesn't want sacrifice. He wants sacrifice, but he's saying, I desire mercy even more than sacrifice, right? So there's a little bit of that flavor. And then the other, the other example that I think of is Jacob. Uh, when, they, when they're describing his relationship with Leah, it says he hated Leah, uh, when in actuality, what, it was, what was happening is he just loved Rachel so much more. And so to the point that they describe his love for Leah as he hated Leah. And so uh, there's, there's some of that understanding here that, you know, the, the, the love for, for Jacob is the, is the main point in that. Uh, and, and what I want you to hear is it's not because Jacob deserved it. Jacob is the deceiver, and yet God chose him. 
And so what he's telling Israel right now is God chose you. Like because he chose Jacob, he chose the lineage of Jacob. He chose you, that you would have the temple, you would have the scriptures, you would have the priests, you would eventually have the Messiah come through your lineage. Esau, on the other hand, says for a single meal, he sold his inheritance rights. And so again, not because he deserved something, but because God chose Jacob and not Esau, it ends up affecting even Esau's children, the Edomites who are descendants of, of Esau. And that's what you read in those other verses of Malachi 1. All in all, I would say, in many ways, we're asking the wrong question though. You know, we're asking the question, you know, why didn't he choose uh, Esau or to make it more personal when we find ourselves in tough situations we say why Lord and I think we we oftentimes ask the wrong question the question we should be asking or the thing we should be understanding of that is that all of this is by grace and mercy in other words that God would choose any of us is simply because of God's grace and God's mercy that God would forgive any of us none of us stand here earning and and uh, worthy of God's forgiveness and yet we get it. We are chosen because God's mercy and God's grace. And the other thing I, I think helps in these situations is to make sure we're looking at this through eternal, through an eternal perspective, which I understand is easier said than done. But so often when we find ourselves in circumstances that we can't explain or circumstances that we don't like, it's hard for us to uh, see that through eternal perspective, that in the, in the grand scheme of things, those things that we are in right now are but a blip on the screen. That in light of eternity, it looks very different. And so I would say it's important that, you know, even, even for Israel, they were, they were called to do that. You read in Malachi 1.5, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. See, it, Israel had been more aware sooner they might have seen uh, all of this. But because they, they uh, weren't aware, because they didn't have uh, uh, eyes for, that were you know, looking at it from an eternal perspective, all they could see was the here and now, which again, I get because we're all guilty of that at times. But to have a more eternal perspective. I came across this story this week uh, it says, while on vacation in Florida, Gareth Griffith decided to try skydiving. He was jumping in tandem with Michael Costello, an experienced instructor, and something went wrong. The main chute failed to open. No big deal. They had a backup chute. The backup failed too. The two men went into a violent spin as they plummeted to their destiny. The instructor corrected the spin and regained control of the fall. Griffith was on the bottom. The instructor was on top. As they neared the ground, the instructor folded his arms and legs, causing the pair to rotate. And in doing so, the instructor hit the ground first, cushioning his student's blow. Griffith survived. Costello wasn't so lucky. He sacrificed his own life so that Griffith could live. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Uh, Beck, would you put the timeline back up? See, one of the things I want you to understand when you look at that is everything points to the cross. If you've read the Old Testament and you've thought, Ugh, you know, I'm having a hard time getting through this. Maybe it's because you've been reading it wrong. As you read through the Old Testament, look for Jesus because he's everywhere. 
In fact, you can go back 2,000 years before this chart even starts to creation and Jesus is there. And as you read the Old Testament, if you'll see that, you'll see that everything points to Jesus. The entire book of Malachi is pointing us to Jesus, pointing us to the cross. See, the reality is we were all created to be in this perfect relationship with God. And unfortunately, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that because of that, the wages of sin is death. So because of our sin, we have this broken relationship with God. And, you know, the reality is we all know that. Like, for all of us, even if we don't believe in God, there's a, there's a moment when you lay your head down at night and you realize something's not right. It's easy to look around the world and realize something's not right. But here's the thing. God always had a plan to fix that. Right? This is not something that all of a sudden God said, oh, hey, let's try this. It was always there. The plan was always there to fix this. In the days of Malachi, there was a foretaste of that. You know, they would bring animals to sacrifice and that would buy them a little bit of time, but it was never permanent. But they were always pointing to one day when the perfect lamb would come, Jesus, the Messiah, when he would come live a perfect life so that we could be made right with a perfect and holy God. John 1 verse 9, uh, 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, this is one of those things we can't fix on our own, that brokenness. You know, there's lots of illustrations that have been used. One of my favorites is, you know, it's kind of like the Grand Canyon, right? If, you, if fixing it means getting across to the other side, you know, and we all start on one side of the Grand Canyon and we take off running and get ready to jump the Grand Canyon. Some of you are really great athletes and you're gonna jump farther than some of us old guys. But the end, all of us are gonna fall short, right? Some of you might get a little further, some of you might, you know, barely get off the, you know, get a step off, but we all end up in the same place and that's the same with our relationship with this brokenness with God. We can't fix it. <coughs> And a righteous God can't simply pretend it didn't happen or he wouldn't be righteous anymore. And so he sent a solution, his son, Jesus, that would live a perfect life, die on the cross, and three days later, conquer death. And so all of that is being foretold and, and pointed to throughout Malachi and here. God is saying, I love you. And you know that I love you because I chose you. And I would just say, you know, that if you don't know that, if you don't know that God loves you because you don't know that God has chosen you because you haven't said yes to Jesus, I would encourage you, maybe today is the day. Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And I would say great is the Lord beyond these walls of Lake City. And my prayer is that God's love for us would extend beyond these walls and into the world that we have been called into. I've just given you two next steps, very pretty simple. The first one is I know God loves me because, love for you to maybe take a few moments and think about how do I know God loves me? Hopefully some of the things I've just been talking about, but maybe there's some other things that you've seen God show up. You've seen God express himself in ways that nothing else could, uh, could be explained. And then the second one there, I'll respond to God's love by, because of that, how can this love extend beyond the walls of Lake City in your life? 
I'm going to tell you about one way here in just a second. But if you would, would you pray with me? Father God, thanks so much for this day that you've given to us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that everything is always pointed to you. And Lord Jesus, I just, this morning, God, I just pray that for everyone here, that your love would feel so real, that we would walk out of here with no question, no doubt, that you love us. And Lord, if there's anyone here that still has not said yes to you, I pray, God, that today would be the day, that today they would acknowledge that they are a sinner in need of saving and that they would understand, God, that you, for that reason you came and died on the cross for them and for me and for all of us. So thank you, God. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.